What's up, guys? Welcome back to the audio version of the 100% Wild podcast. And we've got a pretty cool episode for you today. In this one, we are joined by Mark Drury and Stan Potts. And we're discussing some of Stan's favorite locations to hunt across the United States, including what he believes is your best bang for the buck hunting destination in the Midwest. And we cover a lot, lot more. So stick around. And I think this is definitely not one you're going to want to miss. All right, welcome back to another episode of the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon with Wired to Hunt. I got Matt Drury here with Drury Outdoors, and the Mad Scientist is in the studio with us again. Absolutely. And our guest? This is this is going to be a fun one. So when we put these guest lists together, <clears throat> one of the ones that Mark Drury and, of course, you know myself, we all wanted to get on was Stan Potts. And the reason why, not only is he, I mean, in the industry and just – He's known as one of those original big buck killers. Before people were killing big bucks, Stan was killing big bucks with regularity. And so to have him on, um, it was just, it, it, we had to do it. And not only that, from a personal standpoint, I remember when I killed my first deer ever, we were over there at Pike County, Illinois, and Stan was there. And when Stan congratulated me, we had it up on the buck pole. I thought that was the coolest thing ever because I had always heard Mark and, and Dad talking about him as I was growing up. So uh, cool. without further ado, we have Stan Potts with us today. Hey, I'm glad to be here. We go way, way back, don't we, Mark? I oh, mean, my goodness. It's, it's a privilege to be here with you guys. It's a privilege to have you, brother. And, Matt, how many people can say that Stan Potts was there <laughs> to congratulate him and hug him the first deer they ever killed? Very few. Yeah, it's, it's, cool. a, it's a privilege and an honor, I can assure you. And I, 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 I can remember that like it was yesterday, you guys. And I can remember how proud you, how proud your dad was. He was. Oh, he was busting wide open with pride. <laughs> I remember, I have a similar story. This would have been uh, October 31st, of, or yes, October 31st of 1998. And I had harvested that 195 class deer, and we were in Illinois. And then we got with Stan that day, and only he recognized how big that deer was. We didn't because we had never seen one that big before he had and he recognized it and he grabbed me and hugged me so hard and so many times and then he started measuring things on the deer and that deer had one beam that was 30 inches and he he stretched that tape out and he looked at that number and he didn't show me and he came over and he grabbed me and he goes 30 inch main beam and he just grabbed me because he had seen so few of those but he recognized how big that deer is because he had seen big deer and we had not that's awesome wow stan you know in those early years of of drury outdoors in the mid 90s when we first started doing the the deer titles the early 90s into the mid 90s you were a part of our team right like in the in the early stages of that yes yeah you guys had uh, mark you your dad and Mark had started a video series of just a, a few short years before that. And then I joined that team. And, yeah, we filmed some stuff together the first couple, three years. And, and that's how we got started. Yeah. That's, that's in awesome. The beginning. You know, Stan, I got a question. Mark and, and Matt have both referenced the fact that you were killing big bucks before even these guys were. Um, and before there was probably a lot of media talking about that. How did you how did you learn? How did you get to that level of, of expertise? Well, I just, I just got 
uh, obsessed with big deer as soon as I start hunting them. Uh, you know, in the Midwest, I mean, it, it hooks you. I mean, big mature whitetails, you know, live right around us everywhere, and it and it doesn't take hardly any time at all for you to realize how smart they are once they get to that age class. And it's just like anything else. When you when you are doing something, you want to be successful, you realize how hard it is to be successful, and you just want to work that much harder, and it becomes an obsession. And it's no different today than it was back then for me. I mean, they are the smartest, hardest animal in North America to harvest on a regular basis, period. Can't argue with that. I, I won't argue with it. <laughs> Nobody says it or states it better. This is why I wanted Stan on here, man. Yeah. He's so captivating to listen to, man. There's no, none better than Stan so, Potts. Mark, in those early years, how did you come to know about a Stan Potts? You know, when there wasn't social media and, you you know, and it wasn't as easy. It was it from going to a trade show or how did you come about knowing about Stan? I had heard of him and then we met him over there at Heartland Lodge and he was working for Heartland Lodge, kind of managing their properties and that stuff. And, and we just hit it off. I mean, our, our common interest in whitetail deer uh, made a, a bond instantly. And we had good personal chemistry as well. Just because you meet another deer hunter doesn't mean that you're going to like each other. We fell in love with each other. And uh, we said, you know what? Would you start filming with us? And part of this was from a selfish standpoint. Mm -hmm. We wanted to learn because we knew Stan was far advanced over where we were from a deer hunting perspective. And we wanted to learn what he was doing and how he was doing it. And he taught us so much in those years. It was myself, Terry, Stoltz, and Stan. And we were a foursome. And we would rotate out who was filming with who and who was running the camera and so on and so forth. And it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, man. We had a lot of fun in the tree. And we had even more fun when we got back to camp mm -hmm. those years. Oh, we had a blast. And, you know, actually, you and I did connect right off because we both had the passion for big whitetails. And Terry, too. But you and I just decided to bring him along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> We're still bringing him along for the ride? <laughs> and, yeah, we decided that he would be it would be okay for him to come along on that on this journey. Stan is a giant prankster like Terry and myself are, so we would literally try and top each other nonstop <laughs> on who could get get the other one the most. And yeah. It got to the point a few times where we it turned into probably close to a brawl, you know, but we had oh. a lot of fun. Well, hey, you remember the time when you and your brother, you had those big giant bucks chasing that hot doe in the timber, and you were filming, and he was hunting, and you were back behind him in another tree trying to tell him when to rattle, when to call, and what to do, and it turned out to be, I mean, you guys, you forgot about the deer, and you was ready to get on the ground and, and scuffle. Yeah, we were. We got which i told that story yeah. to another podcast and yeah uh, yeah it, it was uh, almost the end of Drury outdoors that day. <laughs> uh, on a farm funny. that lee and tiffany and i live on ironically oh, wow. that's, that's where that occurred that's, that's funny, funny. Well, I, hunted, I hunted that farm yep. it was a great farm and you know you you brought up you brought up steve stoltz you know i i know that you can remember steve we love steve to, to death he's a great guy great hunter but i can remember when we were flip-flopping you had to you had to watch Stoltzy because when it was his turn to film, he would interject 
on where he thought you should go, and it was sometimes he would try to get you to go somewhere so you wouldn't be close to where he wanted to hunt the next <laughs> I am not surprised by oh, that. Oh, that's a true fact. Right there. <laughs> that's, that's a fact, and, and we love him, to, but he wanted to kill them big bucks just as bad as everybody else, and he would kind of... Um, Try to talk you out of going to the really good spot where maybe, you wanted to. Maybe that was karma then, because I, I recall him missing several big deer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Man. I remember when we was – you remember, Mark, when we were trying to hunt that, that big deer over in Pike that, that, that I nicknamed Chiquita? Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. we nicknamed that deer Chiquita because he was a mega giant 10 – and his tines were long, but they were so heavy, they looked like big Chiquita bananas. Nice. The original Chiquita. The original Chiquita. That's right. I pulled that name on the Chiquita that I ended up killing. And, yeah. Uh, whatever happened to that deer, Stan? Did he die? Or I, I don't. We didn't kill him. Do you recall? Well, we, no. I mean, he. what happened to that deer is what happens to the majority of the big deer that we hunt in our lifetime. We don't get them. <laughs> and they just seem to disappear. And Nobody miles. knows where they go. Maybe they've got like a secret graveyard or something <laughs> like the elephant, but they just disappear. Yep. It's amazing, I, really. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> yep. And Stan's right. Most of them don't get that, killed. Yeah. But that, that right there is what adds to the mystique and the mystery of big, mature whitetails. That's right. That's the truth. Well, do you think uh, on that note, maybe we should get to our question of the day because it's our question is about the mystique of big Midwestern whitetails, and I think Stan, you'll be a perfect guy to talk to about that. So, Matt, and this question the comes question from is looking Jeremy, at hunting and he for the asks, first time in the Midwest looking at hunting this year. For the first time Public in the Midwest land. this year. What's the best land. bang for What's my the buck? Best bang state? for my buck. So basically, state. what state would you focus in on uh, to get get the best hunt? I, I would focus in on Illinois if you're talking about public hunting. And both and naturally, the Midwestern states, Illinois, Iowa, Ohio, and they're, they're all great. But Illinois is my home state. But I say I would focus here because Illinois, the DNR, have several state-run sites that are bow only and or management criteria. And whenever you have a bow only hunting site, then you're always going to have a pretty good number of mature bucks because they're pretty much impossible to over-harvest with a bow. Big mature deer, you know. And if it's bow only, there's going to be a pretty good number of deer that are four years old or older, and that's all you need. Yeah, very true. You've hunted, I've got to believe, almost all of the Midwestern states, Stan. Is Illinois still your favorite? That's your home state. Is that your favorite place to whitetail hunt in the Midwest, or is there another state that, uh, for some reason or another, takes your heart? Well, Illinois is my favorite because it's my home state. It all it, it always will be. They're all good, Kansas, Illinois, Iowa, Ohio. But if I had to choose, and I already have the tag in my hand, it would always be Iowa because Iowa's hunter density is a, a lot lower and therefore, there's a lot of big deer in Iowa. The only trouble with Iowa is, is it, it's hard to get that tag in your hand as a non-resident. But once you have it, it's the best, probably. 
Now, it is a little more expensive of a tag, though. So if we're talking bang for your buck, that's something to consider. Um, I mean, you can hunt states like Indiana or Ohio for you know a quarter of the price, but you got it, other considerations, too. It, it, Illinois, I mean, it's it's probably similar cost structure, right? I mean, it's... It, it, it is. Yeah, yeah it for is. a non-resident. Yep. It's several hundred dollars. Now, if you ask me the question about where the very best place to hunt in the Midwest is, where you can plan your hunt ahead of time, and you're looking at at the cost factor of the license, by far, it's Ohio. Oh, really? Now, why do you say that, other than the fact that those licenses are cheaper? First point would be Ohio is Mm over-the-counter, and it's 150 or 60 bucks. I don't remember exactly what that is. It's over the counter. It does not have a gun season until the Monday or whatever it is, the week after Thanksgiving. So there's always going to be a bunch of deer, and their gun season is shotgun or muzzleloader only. But the bottom line is you and your friend can can plan a bow hunt in Ohio way ahead of time and lay the groundwork for it because you know you're going to have the tag. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to keep people out of Ohio because I hunt there a lot, but I can't deny it. You're, you're spot on, Stan. And there's actually a lot of public land in that state because there's the, the Wayne National Forest down the southern portion, another large state forest, the Shawnee, and they've got a handful of smaller pockets throughout that, that do offer a lot of opportunity. I mean, tens of thousands of acres, tons and tons of ground. And I know that stuff's that's big country, but um, if you're willing to work for it, I know a lot of guys that find good deer in there too. So I think I think you make a great point. I've I've enjoyed now, it there. as far as just another way to look at it, though, I don't know that if, say, you leased a piece down there, that it would be your best paying for your buck because it's only a one-buck state, right? I guess correct? Yeah, that's what they're considering, yeah. <clears throat> if you... all, all things considered, you're correct, but if you're only looking for one big buck mm-hmm. and you're on a, a budget, then it would be hard to argue against Ohio or yeah. Kentucky for that matter. Yeah. But again, a one buck state. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was working on an article for North American whitetail a couple of years ago, and I put together one of those lists of the top 20 DIY whitetail states. And so I went through and I studied, I looked at all the record books, I looked at Pope and Young, looked at Boone and Crockett, measured that as a ratio against the number of licensed hunters in each state, looked at the number of public land acres, looked at the license structure costs, looked at the odds of getting a tag, all that kind of stuff. And uh, in all these states ended up ranking right towards the top. But Iowa, a state that a lot of people, of course, you know, there's lots of great things about it. But when you look at some of those things like costs and the ability to get a license and amount of public land, that dropped pretty far down the list just because it's more difficult from that standpoint. Um, but states like you say, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana is another one that has has really ranked quite high toward in the, when it comes to the record books. A lot of Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett entries low costs, another one-buck state, another over-the-counter state. Um, some of these other states are starting to move up, I think, too, but you can't go wrong with any of them, I don't think. No. <clears throat> no, but, you you know, one thing that you have to factor in, if, you, if you're talking about a person that loves to hunt big deer and looking for a big trophy whitetail to go on a hunt, you have to factor in the fact whether it, you want to bow hunt or gun hunt. And if we're talking about bow hunting, then when you look at states like Mark, for instance, your home state of Missouri and Indiana has this problem slightly. But when you when you look at a state that has a, an extended gun season during the peak of the rut, you are going to have a fewer number of big mature deer. Now, that's not I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to knock 
Indiana or Missouri or any state that has that. But when you're researching to shoot a big mature deer, especially bow hunt, you have to take that into consideration. Absolutely. You know, talking about public ground and over-the-counter tags and overall cost of the tag, I met a gentleman probably about, oh, 12 months ago, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit less. And we were in downtown Festus, and we were visiting there, and he uh, came over and he started showing me all these pictures of giant bucks. They were all 140 to 160, 165 class deer. And, and of course, we got to talk and I inquired more. And he said, those were all public ground bucks. And these were bucks he had harvested through the years, mm-hmm. he and his buddies. And I said, uh, I, I got to be nosy. Where are you killing these at? And he said, Missouri. And I said, on public ground. And he said, yes. He goes, we have uh, an area in the Mark Twain where we hike long distance you know like a three-hour hike to get back in there we stay the full week and nobody's around and he said the herd is in incredible shape and they're just killing giants there in the mark twain close to fort leonard wood and uh, i was like man how about that you know they found their little honey hole and he said we found it by finding the place that was the furthest away from any access he said it takes us forever to get in there but once we get in there he said it's like our private ground nice and they just set up camp he said, we don't see a hunter the whole week, and they're killing some giants. And, I mean, these deer were all five- and six-year-old deer. So it can be done, and it's like anything else in life. It's what you put into it versus what you're going to get out. Absolutely. I mean, it, those guys went the extra mile, and that, that's the Literally. key. That's the key. you got to hunt where, they're all, where they are, and they found where they were. You know, Stan, you know where Fort Leonard Wood is, and you yeah, know the Mark Twain National Forest. military Fort. base. That doesn't come to the top of your head as a, a top you know big buck hot spot yeah but this was public ground that bordered the, the fort mm-hmm. it wasn't on the fort but it was public ground that, that bordered it and I, I find that i found that very interesting story that that guy was able to succeed like that and i mean they were big now you know something we haven't talked about but um you know some guys will go out and try to hunt public land some guys will try to knock and knock on doors and get permission but these days access can be something you can pay for too what about when we factor costs of leases or outfitting? When you start thinking about those two things, if you want to go that route, how does that change things? Stan, is there another state that you would throw in the in the pool when it comes to affordability from a lease or outfitting standpoint? Well, I don't really think it makes any difference. You'd have to research the outfitter. But, you know, when you're talking Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Ohio, those states right there, and some others also, but let's just focus on those. There are outfitters in each and every one of those states. And so you have to research it. You have to find the very best outfitter. And it's no different than what those guys Mark was just talking about. Researched and found their spot. You have to do the same if you're going to if you're gonna hunt with an outfitter. Now, if you're going to lease a piece of property, it's no different. You research it. You see what's been killed in the area. That information is pretty much available through the state. Most states have a big buck recognition program and you just look at that and that's how you do it. You just eliminate and keep eliminating until you feel like you have come down to the very best spot, what you want to do. And that's how you do it. I mean, if you're, if you were looking at a lease, I would think you'd, you would want to look at somewhere where you might be able to get, if you're an out of state or get 
the tags fairly cheap over the counter and maybe get multiple tags, you know, if you're going to invest into a spot. Yeah. And that's a great point. Cause I've always thought about, I'd love to get a spot to consistently hunt in Iowa, but I can't justify spending mm-hmm. money on a lease and then only being able to hunt here every third year or second year in places done by you guys much much less than that yeah um so that's a that's a huge consideration i think for people and and i haven't paid for outfit hunts so i don't know what those costs look like but i i gotta believe that some of your top top tier states iowa illinois maybe kansas like those costs are probably much more than the slightly next tier maybe wisconsin kentucky indiana you're looking at a you know if you're looking at the rut time of year three to five grand depending on the outfitter and how good they are and you know what kind of accommodations they have Mm -hmm. and how much property they have i mean you're going to look at a pretty hefty cost there plus your cost of tags and travel and all that stuff but you know if you're a guy that only has a maybe a week to hunt you know an outfitter isn't the worst way to go in that reality you know you can never never control the weather um but if it's either spending your money on an outfitter or a lease and you know you only got a week to hunt, an outfitter may not be the worst thing, you know? No, it, it wouldn't be the worst thing, but, the, but, but I go back to the same thing. I mean, there's lots of outfitters in these Midwestern states, and there's good ones, and yeah. then there's outfitters that are not so good. Yeah. And you have to do your homework, and you have to talk to people that have hunted there. You know, not not a few names that the outfitter gives you. Research it. Find people on your own that have went there and talked to them about it. That's that's what you got to do. And then as far as the weather goes, you mentioned the weather. The weather is a big factor, but I think you'll agree with this, Mark, that if you're talking sometime a few days before and a few days after Veterans Day in the peak of the rut in the Midwest, it doesn't really matter what the weather's doing. They're still going to be on their feet somewhat. So you just hunker down and get in the tree. And sit all day yeah. when you're there. I mean, yeah. that's one of the Stan, if you had to pick four or five of the top quality whitetail outfitters out there, cost and all things considered, who would they be in your opinion? Um, Buckhorn Outfitters in Illinois, Rob Scott, you know him. I mean, he's got a history of very few hunters, ultra high management, and he's killed mega giants. He's got great property. I've hunted there. And then I'd go to Ohio and I'd hunt with Joel Snow. Those two outfitters there, past that, I would have to give it more thought, but I would automatically recommend either one of those guys because they do it the way I like to see it done. They, they have low hunters, low numbers of hunters, and they manage, and they try to keep their hunters from shooting immature bucks. And they have great property. They don't overhunt them. That, and that's, that's the key. And they're both, Rob and Joel are both killers. I mean, they're big buck killers. They've got, they're, they've got a history themselves of being able to do it. So I'm, I'm always going to look for somebody that has a history of doing it themselves. I think they have a better opportunity to put me on something than somebody that's, that hasn't harvested a huge number of big deer. We've had a few guys go out to Joel's in the past. <clears throat> I think Doug Hampton's been out there. Coondog and Joe have been out there, and they've had some some really good luck. Killed some really nice deer, if I recall. They have. I think Joel does it right. And, yeah. you know, I think an outfitter, you can uh, – 
you can figure out which ones are the best with the one that has the fewest complaints, right? Yeah. You know, because there's always going to be the complainer because he hit the weather bad or the deer yeah. weren't moving or whatever. But if you find that outfitter has, that has the fewest complaints, and I don't hear many complaints about Joel's mm-hmm. operation or Rob's or uh, even our buddy Doug Benefield yep. doing a super yep. good job Illinois up there. Connection. Illinois Connection. <laughs> Illinois Connection. They're killing some giants, and he's similar to – uh, what Stan was talking about, they're trying to manage on a lot of different ground for upper end deer. And when you find that outfitter, then you want to go back year in yeah. and year out. And to Stan's point, Doug's done it himself. You know, yep. he's killed the big deer. He's a good hunter. And, you know, they got – it's a unbelievable facility. I mean, I had the pleasure of going there uh, this past season, actually, for opening day of the Illinois archery season. It's, it's just beautiful. You know, a state we haven't talked about, we're talking Midwest, but you can't overlook Texas. I mean, if you just want to go see a bunch of animals and have a blast, you're not going to find a better state in this country, and you can still find some pretty reasonable priced hunts down there in the state of Texas. Susie O'Dell just killed a 200-inch deer on a 1,000-acre parcel with SEO hunts, Yeah, you know? Uh, so it can it can be done. It was an outfitted hunt. John and, and Susie Mike went Stroff, in there right? through Mike Stroff, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, so you can't overlook Texas. You can't overlook Oklahoma either. Another sleeper state that you don't hear as much about, but they're killing some giants. Coon Dogs was with an outfitter yeah. in Oklahoma, killed a 200-inch deer. We had two different two hundies killed with outfitters this year. Yeah, and you know, I, I, hey, I love Texas, especially <laughs> South Texas. It is a target-rich environment, and when I travel all over the country and talk to hunters and thousands of, of deer hunters. I hear from a lot of deer hunters, they have sometimes negative things to say about Texas. First thing is, is they've probably never been there. And second thing is, is Texas gets a lot of publicity and I think people get tired of hearing it, but South Texas for me is where management for big whitetails first started. Now in saying that, you know, Texas for, for someone that does someone that wants to hunt free-ranging deer, there's a lot of great places to hunt deer in Texas, but there's not a lot of great places that are not under high fence. And in saying that, I'm not against high fences. I just don't hunt them there. So you got to keep that in mind when you go to Texas. But there are tremendous hunting and several good places in texas that are free-ranging low fence i hunt the the last few years i've been hunting the king ranch and and it is of course we all know about the king i mean it's like a million acres or something like that but it's all low fence and it's unbelievable and another thing that i love about texas is when it's over here as far as rut it's just beginning there same same set uh, can be said for oklahoma yeah. Same thing. So don't overlook those two states. And that's why oh. you travel down there so much, right? That's I why mean, I've got a lease in yeah. Texas. You yeah. know, it's uh, we have 10,000 acres leased of a 23,000-acre low-fence ranch, but the, all the neighboring ranches around us are all twenty to 40,000, and they're all managing. And um, the body size isn't big, but it sure makes those racks look big when they're coming <laughs> yeah, in. You, you know, that's, you, that's the thing I never get tired of seeing. You know, a, a 140 down there looks like a 160 up here. So bet. You guys have a lot of fun every time you oh, go down there. Yeah, I mean, he said it. It's target rich. Yeah. It's incredible. You yeah. can see. And, and they move well down there. You know, there's a lot of high pressure, a lot of sunshine, which are the things we look for here in the Midwest. And you just see a lot of deer on their feet every single day, regardless of temperature, because they're, they're used to the heat. So 
So continuing to shift west now, we've talked Midwest, we've talked a little bit about the south. What about western states, Stan? i got to believe both you and Mark have hunted some of these places. Do you have a favorite or best bang for your buck when it comes to the western whitetail states, if someone wants to make that trip Well, most of my experience is in Montana and Wyoming, and most of it is early season, and I absolutely love it. Both states, Wyoming opens the 1st of September, and Montana opens like the it third fourth fifth right in there i don't i think it's the first saturday or whatever but they're tremendous and most of my hunting there is done early season because it's hard it it would be tremendous in wyoming and montana during the rut in november but it's hard to pry me away from the midwest in november but for early season especially for a velvet hunt or just out of velvet those two states are phenomenal actually i've hooked up with Mark in Wyoming more than once. We met down in Hewlett and had lunch. Mark, you remember those days. And, oh, yeah. You know, and you hunt there a lot early also. Absolutely. As far as, you know, if I'm ranking overall experiences, you know, I would put Wyoming, Montana, that area up there with Texas as far as seeing a lot of deer. But most importantly, it's where you see them. You can't see mountainscapes and the valleys that you see in Montana and Wyoming here in the Midwest or in Texas. As far as a beautiful setting with a lot of deer and, a, and some great size to them, it's number one for the overall experience. I mean, you sit there, you're just in awe of where you're sitting and what you're seeing. I mean, it is it is unbelievable out there. It's jaw-dropping. It'll take your breath away. What was the name of the guide out there uh, near devil's tower that we were hunting with uh you're talking about lloyd pruitt lloyd lloyd yeah lloyd pruitt nicest guy nicest nicest areas and most beautiful ranches fantastic mike mike watkins who we've hunted with before stan are you still hunting with mike each year yeah i've got it i'm going to wyoming and montana both with mike this year i'm hunting two states and um i love it i've been going to mike's for you know, 15 years, I, probably. Say 15, 20 years, I don't yeah. know that I've ever missed a year. It's, it's, it's tremendous. Do you hunt anywhere that's more beautiful than that to my, to what I was no, talking about? Nowhere. It's in the Black Hills. It's right in the heart of the Black Hills and it's absolutely gorgeous. And some of those areas down there by Hewlett where you're hunting, there's probably times when you're sitting in the tree, you can see Devil's Tower. Mm-hmm. Perhaps all the time. Yeah. Not, yeah. One thing not to overlook there, too, is their turkey population, right? Yep. It's, it's outstanding. A, yeah, and they're beautiful birds. Oh, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. I love that part of the country. Yeah, yeah. And, and back to the original question, too, he did ask about public land. And if you're going to go out there, there's tremendous public land opportunity in those states. So the overall experience, if you don't want to go with an outfitter, is tremendous out there because beautiful scenery, great populations, but you can do it for free if you want to. You can camp out there in National Forest Land or BLM, cheap as heck. Just get out there, and, and you're going to be in some pretty pretty impressive hunting country. Which is which what is, you usually do, which right? Which is what I've done out there yeah. in Montana. This year you're going to do it in Montana, maybe Wyoming too. That's very doable. You just got to do a little research and put in the work, but um, pretty awesome stuff. Speaking of that kind of thing, Stan, I was curious, back to the Midwest now, back to that original question, um, anything you would recommend as far as someone in this situation who sounds like they're planning their first Midwestern hunt, maybe they live in New York or Vermont or Georgia or something, they want to come to the Midwest, anything they should be thinking about leading up to that trip as far as planning for it or how to execute on that trip when they're out here for their week during the rut or whatever it might be? Well, n- nothing other than the, than the stuff that we've talked about. I, you know, 
It's Midwest hunting. If you want to be successful in the Midwest, then I would look at some time from the last week of October until Thanksgiving, some time, some some five or six day period, whatever the whatever the hunt is. Some outfitters are different, but I would pick a five or six day period in that time frame this is where I could maximize my opportunities for success. And then the next thing, you look at the tags and what the availability is, and then you research it and talk to people that's been with different outfitters, and don't just take. Don't just have the outfitter send you two or three or four names. Research it on your own and then call the people and talk to them. That's what I would do. And with chat sites and Facebook and social media, it does make it a little bit easier to reach out and find out a little bit more about somebody. Absolutely. I I think about this. I got so many emails from our fans uh, this past year about a guy, I won't say his name, but a guy up in Iowa that Mm. that was a crook and and really took a lot of people and um one of our guys had hunted with him the year before and so of course you know an outfitter and i don't know how our guy found him or that they will take that to their advantage and say we had jury outdoors here when in reality it was one guy one time and you know he did have a good experience but yet you know you got to really watch out past yes a tv guy hunted there like look well beyond that because this guy really took a lot of people for a lot of money and i felt so horrible because everybody he kept saying well he was using jury outdoors as a reference i was like look not no jury has ever hunted there we did have a team member that paid for a hunt there and he had a good ex- decent enough experience i guess you should say but you know it's 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 unfortunate so to your point stan really do the homework and look well beyond what they're saying on their website yeah, I'm sure Stan's been in the same situation. You, you go there once, and you might leave the second day of a five-day hunt because yeah. it's so bad, but then then they throw your name out there and try and yeah. you know, benefit from it. I'm sure yeah. Stan's been in the same shape. You've been on some pretty bad hunts, I assume, Mr. Pods. I've been on a few, yeah, but I do what we're talking about. I mean, I haven't been on very many, but I have been on a few, and there's no sense in going into the details on those. But fortunately, I do as much possible research as, as I can. And frankly, I, I don't hunt with a lot of outfitters. Yeah, I don't, I think, you know, and, and I have hunted with Rob Scott quite a bit and I have hunted with Joel Snow quite a bit, but you know, they were buddies and, and hunting buddies and stuff before that of mine, before they were ever outfitters. So, you know, I always, and actually Mike Watkins, I hunt with, in Montana and Wyoming both and I would recommend him to anybody but the way I got hooked up with him it's the very first year we started North American Whitetail Greg Miller had hunted with him on HS's videos and then Pat Reeve and they set that whole thing up and I was out there with uh, we all went out there the white the North American Whitetail team that first year and I just never stopped going. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I always think of a guy like John O'Dell on the Jury Outdoors team. He, to your point, Stan, he really does his homework. And no matter what outfitter, because he does hunt outfitters a decent amount, uh, not there in his home state of Texas, but, you know, when he wants to go out, you know, if he's hunting Kansas, Iowa, uh, he does a lot of hunts up uh, north, you know, anything like that, he's always successful. And I know it's because he researched the heck out of that outfitter before he went, and then he's usually 
probably contacting them nonstop leading up to the point of his hunt. You know, so it's not just here's my money, I'll be here in four months. It's leading up to it. It's what 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 pictures are you getting and you know, what's our plan and maybe even going on a trip out there ahead of time and, you know, helping to hang a set or whatever the case may be. So I feel like John always kind of creates his luck when he goes to these places. No question. Look he at does. his look at his and Dave's You're right, he does. Yeah. Look at his and Dave's history at Southwest Iowa. Yeah. Look at the giants they've killed out yeah. there. And outside of those guys, from an Iowa standpoint, there's not a lot of outfitters out there. The same reason you talked about, it's hard to get a lease because you never know when you're going to draw. From an outfitter's perspective, you never know whether the guy that booked the yeah. hunt's going to draw. Yeah. So there's not a lot of really good outfitters in Iowa, but that Southwest Iowa outfitters is top shelf. Yeah. Really yeah. good. They are. Would you add anything else, Mark, to what Stan said about that guy in that situation where someone's heading out for their first Midwest hunt? Anything else they can be thinking about or things that you've heard from other guys that might help? One other thing, if he's going on public ground, the best thing he could do would be to make a trip there sometime in February or March for a week and just walk the legs out of his tail and try and find those spots when that roadmap is all set in place because it's so challenging. If you think you're going to go to public ground and figure it out in October, that's tough because you're going to run everything out. Go there in February and March, map everything out, mark your scrape trees, mark your trails, do all that stuff, and then when you go to hunt, then you're way ahead of the game when you get there in November because – historically those ancestral trails are going to stay there where the sign is the previous year it's going to be the next year pay attention to crop rotation but you can get ahead of the game if you do some due diligence in february and and march with gps technology and i mean you could pretty much pinpoint anything anywhere and that's kind of what you do when you go out west i know but i mean you you can set exactly where you're going to go back to then you know when you're out there in early february or march yeah you don't want to be trying to find out where you're going to hang your stands the day of you'd much rather know have a plan at least for the first few days of how to get started absolutely just as you go i I agree with that 100 percent. that's a great point mark if you are going out of state to hunt on public property and plan a trip i mean you're not setting yourself up to be as successful as maybe you would otherwise if you don't make a trip in uh, February or March and you know and everything's right in front of you from the previous fall and also you can double you can double dip you can you can go on a shed adventure too yeah yeah I know some guys that do that I know some guys that go in turkey season early turkey season before it's greened up too much you can get some scouting in get some turkey hunting in it's a great way to, to make a fun trip out of it too now, before we started recording, Mark, you mentioned that you wanted uh, to hear a story, maybe see something from Stan. Do you, did you still want to do that? Oh, absolutely. It's been too long since I've seen it. Stanley, <laughs> would you grab that phone and take us in to wherever he's hung? I want to see that big, wide, 200-inch deer. I think you killed him over around Clinton Lake. I'm not sure, but I thought that's where you killed him. I might be wrong on that. But that was one of the most impressive deer I had ever seen in my life. When, when I saw him, I was just taken aback. And I know you've killed some 200 since that one, but that one to me, he had the frame. He had it all, man. I'd love to see him again. Sure. Let, let me let me, let me me unplug this phone right here, and I'll walk over there and show him to you. Stanley, how many 200s have you killed, bud? I've killed four, and I got a 197 and 7 eighths, too. And wow. I was trying to figure out how I could stretch the tape to get another inch and a half. <laughs> Here's a, I'm, in the, I'm in the living room of our house. You can see it's 
behind me there's a bunch of big ones and a big moose i killed um and we've got i've we've got um real high ceilings and a fireplace but if you can see the fireplace right there, there can I'm you sorry. see that big deer yes. mark? Yes. Wow, wow. <laughs> I Impressive. told you. <laughs> How well, high is he? When, when, we, when we designed the house, you know, I had four 200s, <laughs> so we kind of designed this wall for him. There's the big white buck you're talking about, Mark. Yep. And then there's a muzzleloader 200 from Ohio that I actually shot with Joel Snow yep. in, uh, in late December. Then you come right over here. And there's that 220 gross buck that I killed with a bow uh, over by Litchfield, Illinois. And, and that, then here's one that I killed out by Clinton Lake. Wow. That's a 207 gross. Oh, a stud. And those are the four 200s. Then here's my first velvet buck I ever shot, and that's a Kentucky buck that grosses 197. Wow. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome, brother. Can, that's awesome. Can we hear the story of that first 200 you talked about? Can you tell us how that one happened? And what year was that, the big wide one? That was 1983. I shot him, and it came out in 1984 in North American Whitetail. But, yeah, it was, it was actually the day after the first gun season in Illinois, which would have been the 21st of November. And the three-day gun season had just ended, and it was a real mild day. I went in and got in the stand about 1.30 or 2 o'clock, and it was, it, it was 70 degrees. And I went into this spot, and I had a stand in a big bur oak tree right in the corner of this property I was hunting. And th that tree, and uh, hopefully a lot of you will understand what I'm talking about, but that tree was a bee tree. That means that there was a high, hive, a beehive in it. And, uh, you know, they go in and out of a big hole. Looks like a squirrel hole, you know. Well, when I got to the tree, this was November the 21st, and it had been warm enough in that day that some of those bees were outside the hole, and they were swarming around the tree, and the hole was about three feet below my stand. And so I, I, I didn't think that I wanted to try climbing up through them bees because I was scared, you know, and I thought about it. Well, this is how things happen. You got you to have, have some, some luck and, and maybe... Um, Maybe the Lord's got to be shining on you that day because I turned and I started away from the tree to go to another stand. And something told me I got about 40 or 50 yards from the tree and something told me to get back in that tree because the wind was perfect, everything. So I went back to the tree. I tied my bow on the pull up rope and I went ahead and started climbing up and I went real slow and I went right past those bees, no problems, got up in the stand, they were blowing me and I forgot about it and about 30, 40 minutes after I was in the tree, I rattled once and nothing. Then about 30 minutes later, I hit the horns again and just as soon as I hung them up, I heard a noise to my left. I turned and looked and I saw a squirrel going up the side of a little tree. So I assumed that that's what I heard. I turned back and looked to my right, and I'd already, I had my bow in my hand, because immediately you grab your bow uh, when you get done rattling, because sometimes they come in fast. I heard the noise again. So I turned to my left real slow and looked, and there he stood about 40 yards away in a little waterway. that He'd come down out of the timber in this waterway, and you know, I mean, when you see a deer like that, he's 212 gross typical frame. Uh, 197. I mean, he's, 
he, he stand there looking back and forth. Obviously, he came into the horns because it hadn't been but a minute or two, if that. And he crossed the crossed the waterway and went up into the timber. And there's a couple of trails that go through this thicket, and they come out right in front of me in an opening. One of them's at 40, and one of them's at 20. So immediately, I turn sideways, get in position, get my feet set, because I know he's coming out. But I don't know if he's going to come out at 40 or, or 20. And I'm just focused on that opening, and I can hear him coming in the leaves. And then all of a sudden, I see him in my peripheral vision, and he's coming out, and he's got his head down on the ground sniffing, and I can tell he's 20 yards away. And there's an, a red hull bush right there. He goes behind it when he comes out in the open. I come to full draw. And when he starts to come out from behind it, he stops. And all that's exposed is his head and neck. So I'm holding it full draw. You know, where you think, oh, my good, goodness, you know, how, how, how long is that going to take? It wouldn't matter if, I, if it took an hour. I mean, my adrenaline was going. I could have held that bow forever. Well, then he just started walking real slow. And instead of stopping him, when I, what, what I always do, that buck I had seen one time in my life the year before, and I tried to stop him for a 40-yard shot in the, in the cornfield behind where I was now. And, and I wasn't experienced enough to stop him the right way. I, I squeaked at him. I went, and it spooked him, and he took off running about 30 or 40 yards and then stopped and whirled around. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you cannot stop this buck, but he's walking super, super slow. He's quartering away. You're really high in the tree. Just put it a few inches in front of where you want it to hit, and you got to shoot him at the last rib, and that's what I did. And the arrow buried completely to the fletching right behind the last rib, and he blew out of there. And, of course, you know, I mean, I and then I, I'm just – totally in shock and then i'm thinking i hit him too far back i'm doing this your mind plays tricks on you but bottom line is i waited thought i'd wait 30 minutes before i got down i was on the ground in five minutes <laughs> and, and i started to go up there but luckily i kept myself from going up there and i went right straight to the truck went to town got two of my best friends we came back it was dark you know, we got the wheat lights, we tracked him and lost the blood because there was no exit wound, but he only went about 150 yards. I ended up finding him after about 45 minutes of looking. I found him about 150 yards from where I'd shot him, stone dead, last rib, broadhead lodged in the off shoulder, and it took out everything. And, you know, Rusty. needless to say, I was in shock. That's awesome. What bow, what broadhead stand back in 83? Uh, I was shooting a uh, Browning at the time, a Nomad Deluxe with a Muzzy, and I don't, what arrow was I? I was shooting an aluminum arrow, but honestly, Mark, I can't tell you if it, it, it might have been some aluminum shafts that I ordered myself and, and fletched and everything, just raw aluminum shafts, I think. XX75s are game getter twos, no doubt. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Back then, that's all there was back in those that's days. That's all there was. Awesome story, Stan. Was. I was getting nervous as the yeah. deer was coming <laughs> yeah. in. Like, I, my heart started pounding, you know, whether he's going to be on the 20 or the 40-yard trail. Uh -huh. So, thank you for sharing that with us, and thank you for showing all those beautiful trophies, man. That You are a, yeah. you are a uh, an icon, my friend, a hero of mine well, and Terry's, I can tell you that much. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I don't know about that. You know, I'm just a guy that's been blessed to live in the Midwest and hunt big giant deer and i've been lucky enough to kill a few and but if you don't hunt where they're at 
<laughs> can't kill them. You got that right. Very awesome. True. Well, is there anything else we want to touch on on this topic? No. I think we're good. No, Thank you, Stan, good. for joining us. This Thank was you. so much fun. Let's do it again sometime. I had a blast. And uh, I'll see you, Mark, whenever we get the opportunity. We still need to have that turkey hunt together. We've talked about it for years. Yeah. Yeah, I want you to. I want you. Can you still natural voice those turkeys? No, not like I used to. <laughs> <laughs> it left me somewhere. <laughs> yeah, a lot. A lot of people don't know, but you were like. Um, a lot of people don't know this, Mark. You were like five-time world champion natural voice, right? Three of them actually were world voice. Yeah, three. Or three, five. What's the difference? Multiple. <laughs> world just, champ, as Steve Stoltz told us yesterday. <laughs> you're a champ no matter what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you win any of them, you're. Just, you're forever know. known as a world champion. Yeah. That's what Stevie told us yesterday. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for including me in on this, and let's do it again. And just be safe and have a great day. Thank Thanks, you, Stan. Stan. Love you, brother. I love you too, man. See ya. Take care. And Bye. with that, we will just leave everyone out there with a couple quick reminders. First off, thanks for listening. Secondly, if you'd like to listen in the future on your iPhone or your Android device or anything like that, you can subscribe on the podcast app on your iPhone, on iTunes, the Stitcher, or Google Play app on your Android device, and you can submit your very own question for people like Stan to answer in the future by heading over to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild. As always, you can check us out, the, the video version of this podcast on the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel. And uh, while you're there, we have plenty of brand new DOD TV episodes, original hunts, never before seen, uh, stuff that we used to put out on our DVDs. We no longer do DVDs. Everything's going over on YouTube. So check it out. Um, heck, we might even do a throwback Thursday and put a stand hunt out there. That'd be uh, cool. Absolutely. Yeah, we should. That, we should. So uh, check that out. And then, as always, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and DruryOutdoors.com. Thank you so much for listening.